listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Frank. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? I'm okay. How are you? Cannot complain. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero Podcast. You're Francis Fukuyama, very well-known uh, political scientist. You're at Stanford University. Um, author of a number of uh, well-known books, uh, probably none better known than The End of History and the Last Man, which we're uh, going to talk about, but also a book called Trust, a book on the origins of political order, a book on the decline of political order called Political Order and Political Decay, um, and other things. You've been busy. These are big books, uh, big in the conceptual sense, and also some of them are, are physically large. Especially these these recent ones. Um, so listen, Frank. I have to admit that I I set this conversation up in a slightly self indulgent spirit. Um, one thing you and I have in common is that we've both written big think books about history and its direction. Yours, the end of history, and the last man, mine, uh, non zero, the logic of human destiny, which came out at the turn of the millennium. Um. Both of us sometimes one, one of my one of my favorite books, by the way. Oh, I'll bet you say that to all the podcast hosts. <laughs> you know, you did actually uh you reviewed it favorably for the Wilson Quarterly. I don't know if you remember, but uh, that was very kind of you. Yeah. Um uh well, thank you. So is yours. Uh I I uh so you know, the other thing we have in common uh, uh is that we both sometimes get accused of having gotten history wrong. You get accused more often than I do, but that's just because your book is better known, I think. Um, the the uh, And, you know, I don't generally respond to these criticisms on a case-by-case basis. And I thought it would be nice at some point to sit down and respond, but it would be a little too self-indulgent, even by my standards, to just sit there alone on my <laughs> podcast and take on my critics. <laughs> so, but I, so I thought, well, why don't I get Frank? And we can both, we can both do that. And uh, and console one another and so on. Um, and also compare and contrast our arguments, maybe, because there are, there are interesting uh, differences between them. Uh, and so why don't we start out with yours? I thought we could, we could both kind of just, just start out by getting the basic arguments out there, the basic criticisms out there. Both of us deny that the criticisms have any validity whatsoever, or or however we want to we want to put it, um, and then uh, and then do you know compare and contrast, and maybe even okay. talk about the contemporary world. So yeah. you you are you know your book was based on an essay that came out in I think 1989 called The End of History and the National yes. Interest. Now this was I was at the New Republic then. I I very well remember the moment the Cold War was ending. Uh, it it seemed as if we had won, and your essay was about the fact that uh, liberal democracy seemed to have, in some sense, triumphed over competing ideological systems. Fascism had kind of failed earlier uh, in the century, and now, uh, you know, the Marxism wasn't looking great. Uh, is that, um, why don't you take it from there? I mean, if, there's, if I've gotten anything wrong, correct me, but then kind of elaborate to the extent that you, you want to. Yeah. Well, sure. Um, so just to begin, uh, actually, I think the definitive work that I've done on on this broad scope history issue is actually not the end of history in The Last Man. It's this two-volume 
work on political order. So it begins with the origins of political order uh, from pre-human times to the French Revolution. And then the second volume takes that story uh, up to the present. And, um, you know, in many ways, that two-volume series is my attempt to rewrite the end of history because there's a lot of things that I learned. You know, I, I wrote the end of history when I was in my mid-30s, and I just learned a lot more <laughs> Uh, you know, after that period. Uh, and so that's been incorporated into that two-volume work. Uh, among other things, uh, history, you know, in, in the end of history really kind of begins with the early modern period and the takeoff of modern economies and uh, uh, the technological revolutions that have happened since then. But I really didn't know a lot about the early history and particularly uh, you know, a subject that you have written a lot about evolution, you know, the whole field of evolutionary psychology and the fact that human nature really spent a lot of time evolving in primates. And so the, you know, the two volume book really does begin with uh, mankind's primate ancestors and the fact that their brains had evolved to be social creatures in certain very distinctive ways. And that this is a legacy that human nature is a legacy that we carry forward with us and you know the so the um you know the first volume of that series actually begins with primate organization and then how that gets translated into uh the organization of hunter-gatherer societies and hunter-gatherer societies then evolve into tribal societies and the first states are formed and so there's a lot of history that i didn't cover in the end of history but uh, I guess to cut to the more contemporary arguments, the question then is, does history, this modernization process, actually have a clear terminal point or at least a point, you know, where uh, this modern synthesis seems to come together in a kind of stable um, uh, whole? And I argue that that was liberal democracy tied to some kind of a market economy. And a lot of the arguments I've had and a lot of the criticisms that people have made subsequently really have to do with whether that's a stable endpoint and whether they're not alternatives and so forth. And I've been, I believe, fairly open-minded about this. I have all along for the last three decades said, you know, China is really the only global civilization that really looks like it could produce something superior uh, in the sense that it's managed this incredible process of economic modernization. They've mastered a lot of dimensions of modern technology, which is really what's driving uh, a lot of these changes. And they seem to be politically stable, and they're definitely not democratic. And when and you say state, superior, do you mean in terms of sheer kind of power and prosperity? Yeah, yeah okay. I mean, unfortunately. So a serious rival, in other words, to alternative. Yeah, a serious rival. Uh, uh, and the power dimension is more important than a lot of people would like to believe. I mean, I think that the normative evaluation of political orders is important, but quite frankly, a lot of what we accept as normatively right depends on your ability to maintain stability, to grow, to become economically and militarily powerful. Uh, and the Chinese are well on their way to, you know, demonstrating that. And I've always said that I you know, while I think that there are reasons why their system isn't going to prevail uh, in the end, uh, I don't know that because I can't see in the future. I mean, a lot of people accuse me of being a futurologist or trying to make predictions about the future. That's never been my, you know, uh, 
objective. I'm just saying there are these long-term trends, and you know, if they continue, we're going to go in one direction or another. And China is a you know alternative that's out there. Okay. Um, and have you characterized the criticisms as as much as you care to? I mean, it has to do. I mean, it seems to me the 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 kind of crass version of the criticism is to point to a war somewhere and say, I thought you said everything was going to be wonderful. Yeah. Although, actually, even in the essay itself, you, you weren't entirely happy with, with a world in which uh, liberal democracy and market economics had prevailed. You, you kind of said it might be a little uh, boring and maybe uh, more uh, materialistic than is you know optimal for, for true yeah. human flourishing. But, but anyway, you get that a lot, right? That just kind of yeah. pointing to bad things happening. Uh, you know, as a, as a yeah. rebuttal. Yeah, well, my, I mean, my answer to that is, is the same. I mean, you have to look at history in a very long-term sweep and ask the question, has there been progress and does modernization actually look like a coherent uh, uh, project? You know, actually, uh, Polity um, did a, a series of essays uh, critiquing my, my book. Uh, and this was actually on the part of people who had actually read the book, which is a good thing because many of my critics have actually not cracked the book at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, you know, there are a lot of different approaches, but probably the dominant one uh, and the one I take the most seriously is that actually liberal democracy itself is not a particularly stable endpoint. And that they're kind of, you know, I, I said that the end of history will come when you have a society that has no big fundamental internal contradictions that then force it to evolve into something different. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have pointed out that liberal democracy itself may not be that stable, that there may be forces within liberalism that, you know, tend to undermine it. And, uh, you know, I think that in a way was the most powerful criticism. It doesn't mean that there's an obvious alternative. It doesn't mean that China is necessarily going to triumph for the Islamic Republic of Iran or any of the other alternative system, systemic alternatives. but. It may be that we'll just have this kind of incoherent world where there'll all be all these different kinds of regimes and uh, none of them, including liberal democracy, is is actually going to be so dominant. And I would say that that's, you know, the leading critique right now that, that I would take seriously. OK, so let me say a little bit about my my own book, Non-Zero. Um, the title comes from Game Theory, the idea of a non-zero sum game. And part of the book was an argument about what was behind the growth in human social complexity since the hunter-gatherer days you mentioned. You do get this, you know, at different rates in different areas and so on. There's a lot of variation, but uh, you do wind up uh, with agriculture being invented in a lot of places. And then you, you see correspondingly complex uh, societies arise you you ultimately you know wind up you know you get to empires and nation states and then you 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 get to a pretty globalized world eventually and the argument was that uh one way to explain this was to say that you know new technologies arise and and this is an interesting difference between us i mean i'm i focus on material forces in, in that sense at least i'm closer to marx whereas you emphasize hegel from the beginning and in, in the essay itself and associate yourself with a more, you know, idealist in a, in a Hegelian sense view of what drives history and the importance of ide uh, ideas, consciousness, ideology. Um, 
but anyway, so I see technological evolution as a real driver. And of course, human nature is behind that. I mean, we're, we're an inventive species and, and, and there are certain kinds of technologies we latch on to and spread. Um, so in that sense, it's a reflection of human nature. But anyway, the idea is that as new technologies come along uh, that facilitate or otherwise encourage the playing of non-zero-sum games involving more people over larger distances, you get a growth in the degree and scope of human social organization. Uh, that's certainly not to uh, deny the importance of games that are closer to being zero-sum, like you know, human conflict and competition. In fact, those are an, an important sense, uh, an important sense driving forces. But anyway, uh, that's the basic argument. And uh, then, uh, so as for the as for the what I envisioned for the future, let me actually read a. Uh, uh, I, I, I get, as I said, relatively few cri uh, criticisms because the book isn't as well known as yours. But I figured uh, as this conversation was approaching, I, I Googled the one I, I, mo I, re I remembered as most recent. Even this is more than a year ago, but it's uh, by Sa Samuel Hammond. You probably know him or of him. Uh, uh, and here's I'll just read the quote. He's talking about uh, how when we normalize trade relations with China, at the end of the Clinton administration, how this turned out uh, not to work out as well as we thought. He writes, quote, uh, it was at any rate inevitable. That's kind of a reference to my book. The next sentence is, uh, the logic of human destiny, as Robert Wright put it in the subtitle of his 1999 bestseller, Non-Zero, showed, quote, win-win games between people and nations were in the driver's seat of human history, steering us toward a peaceful era of global interdependence. The book was a personal favorite of President Clinton's, but has since become a too perfect cultural artifact of the Whiggish ethos of the late 1990s. The only part I contest is the steering us toward a peaceful era of global interdependence. Uh, I emphasized, I mean, I mean, the, culmin my, the culmination of history, in my view, was this continued growth of non-zero-sum dynamics would put nations in a more interdependent relationship. Uh, but I did say if they don't play their cards right uh, and respond with especially certain forms of global governance to address non-zero some problems they commonly face, bioweapons was one I mentioned, uh, climate change is another one, and so on. Um, now we might say AI, um, and there are others. But I, I emphasize that the doom could ensue for sure. That way, I, I very much, the jury was very much out yeah. on whether humankind would respond wisely to the growing non-zero uh, sumness of uh, history. So there, I feel better. That was very cathartic. That's my <laughs> response. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay. Uh, yeah, I would just um, add a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, you were modest in in portraying your own book because you actually didn't start with hunter-gatherers. You started with, you know, kind of one-cell organisms. And it was a kind of breathtaking argument, you know, that actually you move from single-cell to multicellular uh, organisms of increasing complexity that are all solving these, you know, zero-sum cooperation problems. And that's ultimately how you get to down a very, very long road that extends over billions of years, that's how you get to human beings. And so the process of evolution didn't start with these primates in Africa, it really started, you know, and I don't, I've never heard anyone make that argument before, but it's really kind of a brilliant one. And 
I think you should you should keep reminding people. Or I'll remind people. Well, uh, if you'll remind people of your of your of my genius, I'll remind them of yours. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, uh, it's funny. I kind of tucked that part in the middle of the book. I began with kind of hunter gatherer, you know, uh, life, and 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 then described cultural evolutions uh, unfolding in accordance with the logic of game theory in a certain sense. And then I paused and for a few chapters, yeah, I started off with kind of self-replicating uh, genetic material. And I think there are real uh, kinds of commonalities. I, I think there are people who had made similar arguments without the game theory about the interplay of competition and, and uh, cooperation. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I believe it was all uh, very, I mean, I think getting to the point of a globalized uh, th that you would get some intelligent species eventually, and it would it would go global. I think that was very very likely. Uh, uh, it, it's whether we play our cards wisely from here on out that I think wasn't right. necessarily likely because I think the drivers behind all of this, as unlikely as it may sound, uh, including the the evolution of of more complex and intelligent forms of life, uh, I, I think the drivers have been very powerful. Yeah. Well, I would say that there's one critique that would be common to both of our books, uh, which is really the presupposition of rationality. And I must say that following both American and global politics over the last few years, I've really come to doubt, uh, you know, in many respects, um, uh, basic human rationality. Uh, so solving a game theoretic problem assumes that you've got a rational agent that's trying to maximize, you know, over some kind of a utility function. And so the game theory simply says, how do you, how do you solve that, you know, that problem? But what if the agent isn't actually rational? And this is the part that's actually very difficult. You know, in a way, this started with the Iraq war. Uh, you know, I turned against it and mm -hmm. all of my friends that had a very similar education um, and background and knew the same, you know, details about the Middle East politics and military affairs all came to such different conclusions and they're very certain about themselves. I actually have read a couple of books on the 20th anniversary of that war, uh, um, especially this one by uh, Robert Draper about how to start a war. And it brought back to me the things that I was thinking at that point. Uh, and it really has to do with Jonathan Haidt calls motivated reasoning. Mm -hmm that the people that were in favor of the war, like Paul Wolfowitz and Scooter Libby and, you know, the vice president and so forth, were, uh, you know, they knew the result that they wanted in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And they basically used their really substantial cognitive abilities to defend that predetermined uh, outcome. Uh, and there was no amount of actual empirical evidence that you could put in front of them that would change things. And I think that, you know, we've seen that in American politics, you know, recently, like, um, uh, you know, the rise of populism uh, has a lot of people uh, advocating things that are actually against their material self-interest, right? That uh, you get all these uh, uh, kind of less educated whites in the South that wanted to get rid of Obamacare, even though they were among the biggest beneficiaries of Obamacare. So why is that the case? Well, it's because their partisan tribal loyalties came before any kind of real calculation 
of economic self-interest. And if you think about what are the big obstacles to the kind of global governance that you want or that you would say would be rationally desirable for an intelligent species, it's the fact that we've got nations and we've got you know, national identities that are very self-contained and, and you know, proud of themselves. And, and even though there's a clear material incentive to cooperate, they, they don't get there because they're not fully rational in that sense. Yeah, I would, I would say that I, I don't think uh, hoping that humans will successfully play non-zero-sum games depends entirely on the assumption that they'll be rational, although that would be nice. I mean, uh, the, the history of non-zero-sum social dynamics goes back so far in our uh, biological lineage that we do a certain amount of it unconsciously. So if you ask, why are there the emotions that uh, undergird friendship? Like somebody does a favor for you and you just you just like them, or you hear that they share a common interest. They criticize someone that you also don't like, and you kind of like them, right? And And you're not thinking, oh, well, we have a common interest. We could pursue it jointly. We have a non-zero-sum relationship, and we could overthrow the person we don't like. You don't, you don't have to think all that right away. The emotions like uh, gratitude and 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 and, and a, a lot of these feelings were designed to get our ancestors to play non-zero-sum games without necessarily thinking about it. That said, uh, there are also uh, uh, emotions designed uh, to support conflict in certain circumstances. And I think worse still is the fact that our environment now is so different from uh, the environment that uh, that these emotions developed in, that, that we can't assume to the extent that we might have with a hunter-gatherer society, that that they will serve us well, that, that they will be yeah. proxies. They were designed as kind of proxy uh, rational game theorists in a certain mm -hmm. sense. And we can't uh, assume uh, very confidently that they will act like that now in a, in a in an environment so different from the one they were um, designed for. Yeah, I don't know whether it's you or some other evolutionary psychologists who said that human beings cooperate to compete, uh, and they also compete to cooperate, uh, and that that's kind of been one of the big motors, right? That it's actually competition against other groups that has driven competition within the group, uh, and therefore. Um, you know, although those emotions support that in-group competition, they also reinforce the out-group hostility and, and you know. That, I, I think that's fair. Uh, different evolutionary psychologists, depending on how much they're in the group selectionist tradition, may differ in how they conceive the group. So I would think that a lot of the uh, intergroup competition that shaped our psychology has come actually within social groups has been coalitional infighting and not always physical fighting. It can be two groups arguing over who deserves what or who mm -hmm. wronged whom. And I think that because that ultimately had Darwinian stakes, you know, because it, it had to do with like, who's going to get certain resources, um, that, that all of that shaped moral psychology. Uh, but, um, but but yeah, so uh, the two are certainly intertwined, and and, and anyway, I, I I think we all agree on on many of the kinds of cognitive biases, the biases that uh, that that can foment and sustain conflict uh, between groups, uh, and and just delude us all into always thinking we're in the right. Um, 
Yeah, you know, even when we're defending our books, I mean, let's face it, you know, somebody criticizes your book and you go through and, and with confirmation bias, you pick up on the most, what seem like the most obviously wrong things. And sometimes you'll, you'll even skip the context that actually would weaken your complaint about that if you, if you paid attention. It's all, mm -hmm. it's all motivated reasoning. Um, let, me, let me ask you a question. Uh, has, uh, to what extent has modern technology, I, I think modern tech, technology that has come along since we wrote our books uh, has maybe challenged our, our theses in, in certain ways. I think of the big revolutions as being um well since your book came out the whole internet appeared really in 92 nobody was talking about the internet when the book your book came out uh the internet was part of my book and i talked about it but it was before social media and it was before ai was a real thing um to what extent has that uh reshaped your thinking about about the prospects for humankind yeah well it's had a big effect i mean when the internet was first privatized in the mid-1990s, I and a lot of other people thought that this would be great for my argument, you know, that it would help democracy because information was power. And if you spread information out more widely, more people would have power and they could take control of their lives uh, and so forth. And um, that was the premise, you know, because technology would be liberating. And it has been in, in many instances, but it turns out that it could also be very destructive. And I think what we've seen is, you know, the technological elimination of a lot of middlemen. I, I remember back in the 1990s, people were saying, that's great. You know, you don't need these gatekeepers. Everybody can be their own publisher. Well, turns out if everybody's their own publisher, there's no quality control. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody's publishing whatever the hell they want. And there's really no hierarchy uh, by which people can see what's you know, more credible information and what's less, you know, I mean, forget about agreement on values, but just agreement on basic facts, like who won the last election or is this vaccine safe? I mean, uh, people can say whatever they want in this sphere and they do. And it leads to this cognitive deterioration where, you know, the structures that have been put in place for the certification and validation of certain kinds of empirical knowledge about the world have been eroded. And this is a big problem. Uh, it's a little bit less of a problem in an authoritarian society because they can continue to reinforce those hierarchical structures. But in a democracy, it gets pretty uh, destructive. And I'm not really sure, you know, how we're going to see our way uh, out of this. Yeah, the um, I should say you've been thinking about technology a long time. I remember in the 90s, uh, maybe even late 80s, you you organized a series of kind of evening seminars that yeah, you invited that's right, me to. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, when you were at uh, School of Advanced International Studies, SAIS, and uh, if, if I got those words right, uh, anyway, S-A-I-S. Yeah, no, that's right. And uh, um, I remember that's the first time I heard about this thing called Google. Uh, one of the seminars was somebody came in and said, I don't know if they were from Google or what, but it was like they have a new approach to search. And and they did uh, a new way of ranking websites. And, and that turned out to work out. But but you've uh, you've been thinking about this stuff a long time. And, and you know, and yet uh, I don't I think very few people could have envisioned what social media that, that social media would assume quite the form it did and have the effects it's had. 
you know, I, I think in a way my main concern is not so much with the qualitative nature of the changes with the velocity of it. It's like you need a certain amount of time to digest each change and adapt to it. And we haven't even really adapted to social media. I think, I mean, we haven't figured out like the challenge of raising kids in a social media environment. And now comes AI, right? Uh, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, if you look at the history of uh, the world since the Industrial Revolution, yeah, you're right that there's been this constant uh, burst of technological change, and then it takes societies a long time to figure out how to get it under control, right? So the printing press is the classical beginning point of this European destabilization that takes the Protestant Reformation and turns it into a European all-out war. And then finally, you know, it takes another 150, 200 years to uh, get that under control. Radio, television propel fascists, Stalinist dictatorships. And, you know, again, there's a lot of Sturm and Drang before that's uh, uh, under control. And I think you're probably right that the rate of innovation, because we have a social system that produces innovation, that's dedicated to rapid innovation, the stuff is in many ways coming at us. I'm, I'm a little bit, I guess I'm a little bit of two minds though about the question of speed because certainly in the digital world, things have moved very quickly, but there is this um, counter line of argument that actually the biggest technological changes actually occurred in this period from 1870 to about 1970. You know, you think about electricity, Mm -hmm. that made or indoor plumbing. my favorite is indoor plumbing i mean i just imagine a world without indoor yeah. toilets you know how awful that yeah, is i also i also am a fan of indoor plumbing i just want to uh, sign on to that yeah okay uh but that you know in certain ways um although the digital world has evolved very very rapidly since 1970 we're still traveling on you know jet airliners we're still using ships to transport goods railroads you know driving around in cars so that certain ways uh, the change has actually not been as rapid and it's an interesting question whether um you know what technology was doing in that period was just grabbing this low-hanging fruit and that there will be further changes in the future but you know mm -hmm. so i i don't know i i don't have a strong opinion about that but you're certainly right that the um in, in the digital realm, the ability to adapt to new circumstances has been really foreshortened. You know, I think the internet needs to be regulated, but we really haven't figured out how to do that. And, uh, you know, until we do, I think we're going to be subject to these perpetual disruptions, you know, just over the horizon are deep fakes, you know, that's going to destroy the credibility of every photograph, every video, you know, that's yeah. out there on the internet. And, how do you deal with evidence in a court case? You know, once uh, you know, once that kind of manipulation becomes widespread, yeah. And we may develop ways to do that, and people are talking about them. It's just that it takes a while to implement each one. So if you're beset with a whole lot of challenges at once, I mean, like with AI, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this. If you imagine that these bots online. Say their goal is to foment uh, political polarization in a country, or their goal is to recruit 
people to some new uh, apocalyptic cult, whatever, they are actually having conversation with people. They seem like humans and imagine that they are absorbing the feed, conversational feedback they're getting and kind of the sign-up rate or whatever and, and adapting their own algorithms in keeping with that and proliferating the successful algorithms. And so they're like evolving in real time to be more effective. You know, it's going to take a little while to, to figure out what you do about that. Um, yeah. I, I should say, you know, AI is an example of the kind of thing I was talking about in my book, as, as I said, when I said, you know, there's going to be more uh, problems that can only be regulated at the international level. Climate change, bioweapons, which I think it, it kind of amazes me. We still, for all the talk about a lab leak, I haven't heard many people really grapple with the implications of that. Whether or not it was, it could have been. And even though it wasn't intentionally engineered as a bioweapon, it could have been. And that could have happened anywhere in, in, in any number of labs. There's no serious discussion of the kind of international regulation re regime you'd need to control that. It's much more challenging than nuclear weapons. And AI shows signs of being more challenging still. And, uh, and yet something that, again, I think needs to be regulated at the international level. I mean, if you imagine it evolving in a Cold War mindset where we're worried about what the Chinese are doing, they're worried about what we're doing. You know, that's only going to accelerate. That's only going to work against regulation, even at the national level. So anyway, uh, this is my great concern. I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. So, I also so Actually, before, before sure. you ask me that question, I want to ask you a question. Okay. I recall in non-zero, you had all these references to Teilhard de Chardin. Yeah. And the idea that the internet could actually create something like a global mind that would actually not be fragmented into all of these competing, you know, kind of evil nodes, but would actually develop something like a global consciousness. I mean, do you still believe that something like that is possible? Well, I actually am, uh, I want to write something called AI in the Noosphere. That was Teilhard de Chardin's term for it, the Noosphere, the thinking envelope of the earth. Uh, partly because the AI is turning out to be more uh, of just a reflection of the pre-existing global brain than we thought. You know, the way it just scans the text, uh, you know, human output to date, and then does it. So I, I haven't, I, I guess I'm starting to think that's kind of the sunny outcome, is that maybe AI becomes a giant global brain and we enter a symbiotic relationship with it and continue to be the ones who decide uh, how we want it to behave, right? Uh, I, I don't mean something highly centralized. Uh, I, I haven't really uh, thought it through, but it's interesting that you should bring that up. Um, I don't know. What's your, what's your, I have two questions, but first of all, just what's your, what's your reaction to what we've just said? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't, I don't really see a global brain. I mean, I, I do think that the um, impact of AI is going to be more, you know, conflictual in a certain sense, that it's going to empower, you know, local actors that, you know, can can do various things, sometimes for good, sometimes for uh, bad. I thought one of the most interesting discussions you had in your book was uh, the discussion about consciousness, you know, that question of whether consciousness arises. And I, I remember very distinctly, you took on a lot of the 
people, the neuroscientists that had written about consciousness. And, you know, a lot of them have this idea that consciousness arises just when the density of the neurons gets to a certain point, right? So brain is just a wet computer. It's much more complex than any existing computer. But once the the the, the dry computers get to that point, uh, you're going to see things like emotions and subjective feelings and so forth arise. And as I recall, you th you were very skeptical, you know, that that we didn't really understand that transition and whether that could actually happen. But certainly that is relevant to the question whether there will be something like a global brain. Yeah, I guess um, I, I, I I do think consciousness is quite mysterious. And, and one reason is, although I, I'm I'm willing to accept that uh, the kind of epiphenomenal view is a real possibility. That is to say, it just it just arises out of the physical workings and has no uh, independent causal force, right, on those workings. But but that just raises the question of why it's here. That would mean it has no evolutionary function, and and it only begins to influence things at all once you and I start talking about it. Once you get uh, creatures with language that start to report their subjective states. That could support, uh, uh, well, it could in a way support a teleological view of history if its function only emerges long after uh, it first shows up. But I don't, I don't and, and as you know, I'm more open to teleological interpretations of, of history than many. But um, uh, I, I, there's a consciousness question I have for you. I, at least it involves the same word, if, even though it's a very different kind of question. Do you want to elaborate on the sense in which you identify with Hegel's emphasis on kind of consciousness and ideas as uh, maybe not entirely autonomous in their, uh, you know, influence on the world? They respond to material forces, but it, it it's always a hard thing for me to think about it all. Well, like, which is on top? Ideas, obviously, material world influences ideas. Ideas influence the material world. Um, what does it mean to emphasize uh, the side of it that you emphasize? Well, I just think it means that you have a more complicated view of historical change. Uh, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, for the la I mean, since I've become an academic, I had to deal with all these rational choice political scientists who think that everything is just a matter of material self-interest and rational agents that are dealing with it, and. I keep saying, you know, ideas are also important. I'm not denying that people respond to material incentives and organize their societies to maximize that in a certain sense. But there are other phenomena that you just cannot explain without reference to ideas. You know, so, for example, the Protestant Reformation, you know, Martin Luther tacks these 95 theses on the cathedral door uh, and a lot of things begin to happen. Is there a simple material explanation for why that took place. Well, okay, that Germany at that time was ready for a social revolution, but there had been social revolutions before and after, and there's something about the way that Luther made his arguments that was particularly mobilizing and catalyzed a lot of people into uh, action. And, you know, you can't really explain, you know, subsequent developments if you don't actually see ideas as a kind of autonomous realm that develop kind of on, in parallel with the development of material things. So I tried mm -hmm. to explain this in my identity book, you know, that in a way, Luther has this impact on contemporary identity politics, because 
he had this idea that there's an inside and an outside, and the true Christian believer is one whose inner self uh, has faith in God, and it doesn't matter what any of your external behaviors or beliefs, uh, you know, are. And that gets secularized, you know, by someone like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who says it's really that inner feeling of existence that's the authentic self, and all of the social conventions are, you know, are are meaningless. And this then leads us to you know, this modern sense of identity where we believe that we have this inner hidden being that's the true, authentic, real us, and the society is forcing us to conform in all of these different ways. And, you know, I, I just don't see these as a product necessarily. They're influenced by material events, but if you don't actually listen to the conversation that these thinkers have with one another and how, you know, you take this Protestant idea of the inner self and then you give it a secular form that that has a big you know impact on the on the outside world so you know i was never arguing against uh any of the materialist you know in fact what what i said in the end of history is that there are these two drivers that operate in parallel there's a material uh driver that had to do with production techniques and you know the nature of the economy in any given period uh but there's also a parallel evolution of human consciousness and the two interact mm -hmm. uh, causality runs in both directions but they are separate drivers of history so you would acknowledge for example to, to stick with the reformation that that the printing press was very likely to pose a kind of challenge to the catholic church which had previously uh, exerted kind of monopoly on written information because they had the monks <laughs> the monks did the writing um but uh but it was and, and and maybe it was even close to inevitable that this would result in certain groups whose interests hadn't been uh, indulged by the church, uh, th that it would lead groups like that to engage to, to give some kind of pushback, maybe some rebellion. But then you it certainly wasn't inevitable that it would be a guy whose big thing was faith, not works. Right. And now I now I suppose uh, the. Um, and, and and he had various other eccentricities. I mean, you know, he was anti-Semitic. He had he had a whole he had all kinds of, of baggage that he brought with it that you wouldn't say flowed inevitably from the printing press. Um, yeah. But uh, but, so that's but exactly it. Or if, yeah. if Karl Marx had not been born, <laughs> you know, would you have had the kinds of communist revolutions that then characterize the next hundred fifty years of human history? He, you know, you had all these. Uh, uh, Proceeding socialists like LaSalle, and I mean, you kind of learn the history of this when you learn 19th century European history, but somehow Marx managed to put it in this way that convinced everybody that this was truly scientific as opposed to all these unscientific forms of socialism. And a lot of people mm -hmm. wanted to believe that, and you know, the idea caught on, and it really had to do in a way with the ability to shape ideas in you know, these complex, persuasive ways that really give them, you know, force. And again, that's not something you can simply explain, you know, yeah. as a result of the social conditions or economic conditions. Yeah, I mean, that's why, uh, I mean, in a way, the question is how how big, uh, how big a swath do you carve out for contingency? And I would say even in my worldview, a very big one. I mean, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say something like the Soviet Union, that whole period was anything like inevitable. I do think globalization was pretty close to inevitable, assuming we didn't get hit by an asteroid or something. Um, 
and and the kinds of choices it faces us with generically, like either cross the threshold into a true global community that solves critical joint problems together or or pay the price. Beyond that, uh, and and of course it's beyond that that our that our lived lives largely, you know, <laughs> that's where we live, right? It's like you and I lived through the Cold War. Uh, I mean, we uh, uh, we remembered a lot more clearly than than some younger people, and uh, it, it was formative and definitive. Uh, and it's yeah. a reason I'm not curious. I'm not uh, eager to return to another one. Uh, it's one reason. Um, wh what are your thoughts on that? By the way, uh, well, let's take. Uh, see, th this is an interesting thing to me. Is your uh, I would think that your argument in the end of history. You, you already mentioned that you would never have ruled out the triumph of something like uh, uh, China. But, um, and I should acknowledge that I, although I didn't, I didn't, you know, uh, predict the, the the triumph of of uh, liberal democracy. I I did, you know, uh, I think market economics are, are are more efficient than a command economy, and you would see more economic engagement. And I thought that, uh, leaving aside the question of whether China becomes a democracy, I thought that um, especially digital technology would pose the leadership there and other places with a choice between uh, continued kind of authoritarian autocratic control and prosperity. In other words, uh, if you if you give people the kind of freedom you you need to to uh, harness these technologies in the name of prosperity that at least tends to have a politically pluralizing effect. So I did say that, and I, I admit that uh, China has done, uh, well, especially the current regime, a better job than I might have predicted of even in the age of the internet, uh, kind of keeping things under control, so to speak. So that's, I have a little bit of a mea culpa there, uh, maybe. But certainly with your argument, um, I think the naive reader at least would think uh, contemporary China is a big threat and if, if, for that matter, if Russia, in uh, if Putin-esque Russia becomes this huge uh, force, which actually doesn't seem that likely right now, but um, that that's a challenge. Uh, what do you, what do you, are you, you don't want to make any predictions about well, the future um, of China? No, I don't want to make, I don't want to make a prediction, but you may still be right in that original view because what Xi Jinping is doing right now is actually deconstructing the competitive market economy that, China's current prosperity really depends on. And so uh, it, <laughs> I think it's still still the case that competitive market economies do better than centrally planned ones. And he is shifting China back to that earlier model for really uh, reasons that I find hard to fathom, but it is going to have a big impact on uh, China's ability to continue to grow. And uh, you know, it's really their growth that has a allow them to avoid all of the social tensions that would build up when you have this degree and rapidity of social change. Uh, you know, they're constant. In fact, there's just a piece uh, that I read this morning about the unemployment rate among college graduates in China is now approaching some, it's well over 20%. Uh, and what's that going to do to the stability of the system if this, you know, continues to deepen and, you know, you really get economic stagnation. So you still may be right about the yeah relationship between, you know, a certain kind of political freedom and the ability to maintain a kind of sustainable growing uh, economic system. 
Yeah, I would think if you ask why he he's he's done this, it's because he fears that there is a connection. I mean, certainly when he tried to marginalize some of the big capitalist players, it was because they were he saw them maybe as a political threat. But that's not exactly w- what I have in mind. But in any event, I, th- I agree with you. The jury's out on whether uh, he can reconcile uh, prosperity with extremely firm um, centralized political control. Um, so do you, uh, anyway, I was going to ask you, like, do you, about this Cold War thing, uh, which concerns me greatly, uh, uh, the, um, where we seem to be heading. Are, are you concerned? You're probably more of a hawk than I am. Uh, maybe both Russia hawk and China hawk. I don't know. But how, what's your take on all this? Yeah, I'm definitely more hawkish than you. <laughs> oh, so you've kept track of my uh, Twitter yes, output? Yes, yes. <laughs> well, that's what social media does. It allows you to follow a lot of people uh, simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, I mean, especially with Ukraine. You know, we've uh, I personally and my center has done a lot of work in Ukraine ever since 2014. Uh, and we have lots and lots of Ukrainian friends. And uh you know, uh, at one point, uh, they captured a list of people that the Russian, you know, the, the Russians tried to take Kiev in last uh, February, March, and then they had to withdraw. And so they actually got a lot of captured Russian documents, and they actually had lists of all the people that they would have arrested if they had succeeded in taking the capital. And, you know, a lot of our people were on it, you know. And so it just seems mm-hmm. to me that the um, the moral cost of, you know, this kind of uh, aggression is is going to be a really uh, a really high one. So I've been very supportive of uh, Ukraine. I mean, that's a whole separate discussion that we can get into about you know the military situation and and moral justifications and so forth. Um, you know, China I think is going to be a big problem because I do think that you know any power that rises that quickly uh, and gets that big is simply historically has always been a big problem for international systems to uh, to handle. And, uh, you know, I, I guess the one thing that makes me a little bit less concerned is that Xi Jinping seems to be much less of a risk taker than Putin. And Putin's just off the charts in terms of the stuff that he's willing to, uh, you know, to risk. Uh, I wrote my PhD dissertation actually on Soviet uh, policy in the Middle East. And I, the basic thesis was that they would threaten to intervene, but they actually never did it. They'd always threaten after the peak of the crisis when they knew that they wouldn't have to carry through on the threat. So they're actually extremely cautious. They never introduced their own forces uh, into the region or really any other region. Putin has just shot all that to hell. You know, he's put troops in Syria and Venezuela and, you know, well, so, Syria, no, but I mean, we probably shouldn't get too much into the nuts and bolts. He was invited in by the Syrian government. That's not like us inviting well, yeah, invading but, Iraq. But, uh, but, you know, the Soviet Union was invited in, too, during the Cold War, and they just never, they yeah. never need to do that. So, uh, so I, there's just a level of risk-taking in his case that has also, I think, been very uh, self-destructive because he's taken these really crazy risks, the biggest one being invading Ukraine and He's now paying a huge price, and that society is going to pay uh, a, a continuing price, I think, really for generations. Yeah, I think he's gotten uh, less risk averse with time. And uh, 
you know, my, uh, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm very, uh, you know, uh, his, inv- he, he, the invasion was a clear cut violation of international law. I, I condemn it along with everyone else. Um, the reason, uh, I mean, one thing that shapes my whole reaction to it is, uh, my sad recognition that the U S has been a flagrant, a violator of international law. And for that reason, I think in terms, you know, uh, it's, it's not as if, uh, you know, well, I, I worry about uh, the, 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 the risks associated with trying to push Russia all the way uh, uh, out of Ukraine, just in terms of likelihood of nuclear war. But I also worry that it will not um, have nearly as much positive effect in terms of reinforcing the norm of respecting international law as it would have had if we had ourselves um, respected it. But but I want to ask you, I mean, I also have this view that we kind of misplayed our hand over the last 25 years uh, and uh, and we could be living in a very different world that didn't have a Ukraine war if uh, if we hadn't. And I think that I want to ask you if you don't agree with some of that, because I remember, you know, there was a conversation uh, this this podcast non-zero was previously under, I started this thing called, uh, co-founded this thing called Blogging Heads TV. It kind of evolved into this. I remember a conversation on that platform between you and Bob Kagan. And you were predicting at that point that uh, what we had done in Kosovo, not just the military intervention, but we had just, I think, started to recognize Kosovo's independence. And by the way, that was, I think most people would say an illegal violation of international law that that uh that intervention at least i and a lot of people would say that um and you predicted that that putin would um well exploit that or that would make it more likely that he would start screwing around in georgia which he subsequently did so i, I want to ask you were you a critic of some of our early russia policy including nato yeah. expansion or not uh, well look uh, you know i know you interviewed uh, john mearsheimer i mean john is an old friend and colleague of mine, but I think he's just been completely wrong, and he's been playing a very, very unhelpful role uh, ever since the uh, uh, Russian invasion started. Yeah, I mean, I was not in favor of taking Georgia and Ukraine into NATO back in 2008 when Bush administration pushed that. Okay. Uh, it wasn't uh, It wasn't for uh, the reasons, however, that John uh, cites. It was really because I thought that, you know, I started out as a as a military analyst at the Rand Corporation, and one of the things you know is that you can't support a military operation if you don't have the right military logistics. And it just seemed to me that it would be very, very difficult to actually defend Georgia and Ukraine. And Ukraine, you know, at that time being you know divided between a Russian-speaking East and a, a more Ukrainian uh, West. Actually, right now, I'm completely in favor of taking Ukraine into NATO. I don't see how you're going to end this war if if you if Ukraine doesn't actually become a member of NATO. But I think that you know the the problem I had with with Mearsheimer's argument is that he's completely oblivious to what Putin is actually saying. And of course, Putin has complained about uh, NATO expansion uh, and so forth. But the deeper arguments are are so much broader than that. You know, he thinks that the the collapse of the Soviet Union was a huge uh, tragedy. He thinks that the Slavic peoples, you know, really have a destiny that uh, includes the domination of all the weaker 
uh, countries around him. And that was not driven by any kind of threat, you know, from what's essentially a defensive alliance. It comes from his understanding of Catherine the Great and Peter the Great and, you know, Russia's destiny as a, you know, as a Eurasian power. Uh, and so I think that, um, uh, yeah, so I, I just think that there are so many other drivers of what Putin ended up doing uh, that NATO expansion, you know, it was it was imprudent. It gave him a good excuse. I guess this is the way I would put it. It gave him an excuse to do what he wanted to do anyhow that has now become persuasive among a certain audience in the West and mm -hmm. therefore has weakened, you know, the Western uh, 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 support for, for Ukraine. Uh, but I would agree with you that we've made a lot of mistakes. I mean, the invasion yeah. of Iraq was a huge mistake. Uh, I think that one of the reasons that we uh, that Ukraine hasn't gotten as much uh, support in the global south uh, that we or people like me think it deserves uh, is because of Iraq, certainly in the Arab world. I've had Arab friends tell me that, uh, look, you did the same thing in 2003. So why are we supposed to get so excited mm -hmm. about Ukraine uh, when, you know, you did it yourself? Now, I do believe that you can make a both a moral and a political argument why these are two very different cases, you know, Iraq was a really rapacious dictatorship, uh, and Ukraine is a, you know, pretty good democracy. But I can appreciate the point that, you know, in terms of crossing international borders with military force, that was a terrible precedent we set. And we've mm -hmm. made certainly many other mistakes in especially in the Middle East, because I just think that we don't know what we're doing in that region. Um, uh, you know, that that have weakened our position. But you know, Vietnam was a mistake too. I mean, there have been a lot of, of mistakes. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I don't want to. I mean, I I, I kind of think Putin's uh, the worldview you describe has, to some extent, evolved more than we appreciate. Uh, you know, and, and the things he's saying that seem to go so far beyond a, a Mearsheimer world of just national security as a motivation. I think uh, kind of got a lot more pronounced and crystallized, I think, in response to his perception that we uh, kept uh, keeping disrespect on him. But that's that's another um, argument there. I mean, it goes beyond NATO expansion in terms of the things he was uh, unhappy with. But um, but but all that is that's a much longer conversation. I know you've got to go at the top of the hour. So I wanted to ask you, I wanted to get back to technology um, and ask, uh, we kind of touched on this a little, but uh, it's it's relevant to the future of liberal democracy. I mean, is it is it possible that uh, information technologies, including social media, including AI, are so potentially destabilizing that a more authoritarian uh, and autocratic country has more of a competitive advantage than they would have had thirty years ago, just because? Uh, they're going to be better able to uh, crack down, keep that stuff under control, and keep it from destabilizing their societies. Well, you know, it, it's possible that that will work in certain uh, in certain domains, but whether that becomes a sustainable system uh, is really questionable. You know, the thing about authoritarian regimes is that when you're sitting on top of a society that's kind of a boiling cauldron, and a lot of changes are happening, and Social conditions are changing very rapidly. 
you're trying to control that in a top-down manner simply through uh, repression. And I think what we've seen repeatedly is that that kind of regime looks really strong until the moment it collapses. And a lot of times you can't predict when that moment is going to hit, but you know it it hits eventually because you know the nature of social change just outruns the ability to control. I mean, one of the really fascinating things that's going on in the Middle East right now is that uh, these autocracies in the Persian Gulf, Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, UAE, Qatar, are educating women at incredible rates. I mean, most of those countries. Uh, graduate, you know, I mean, 60% of their college graduates or more are are female. How long are those regimes going to maintain that kind of patriarchal control when, you know, half of your society is much better educated than the other half, you know? Uh, So, you know, they've, they've done a pretty good job at maintaining stability up till now, but without fundamentally adjusting, I I think they're head and you know the stuff that's gone on in Mas- after Masa Amini's killing in Iran is a, you know, is a sign of it. So the regime has held on by the skin of its teeth, mm-hmm. but it has deeply, deeply delegitimized itself in in many ways. And you know how it's going to survive the next thirty years is it, very questionable. Yeah, and I mean China has its own things. You mentioned some, but it has uh, like a, a surplus uh, of males owing to uh, selective abortion that oh. was in turn a consequence of the one-child policy, um, and that can be a destabilizing thing in a society. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of uh, question marks out there. Well, listen, thanks so much for um, taking the time, Frank. I think uh, in closing, we can agree that both of us deserve a lot of respect. And uh, and should be, I, I think, pretty close to immune to criticism. Would you? <laughs> would you? Would you support? I, I, would, it? I would. I would jail all the people that actually really criticize us uh, openly. In your ideal liberal democracy, they would all be in prison. Is that? Yes, they'd all be uh, in prison. Uh, yes. That would be the end of history. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I'm with you there. Well, okay. uh, thanks so much, Frank. Great talking okay. to you. Okay. Yeah. Same here, Bob.